Hey, welcome to the Grant's Interest Rate Observer Podcast. My name is Jim Grant, and with me today is the deputy editor of Grant's, the great Evan Lorenz, and Eric Whitehead is at the dials. And this episode of Grant's On Air is brought to you by eFinancial Careers, the world's leading financial services career website. Discover career-changing opportunities across the industry from leading brands to niche firms. You know, why not take the hard work out of job hunting? Register today and let recruiters find you. So check out the site, eFinancialCareers.com. Hey, John, speaking of jobs, I see, according to Bloomberg, uh, that restaurants are not hiring as they did. And, uh, you know, that would be a very big deal because restaurants have been in the vanguard of such employment growth as we have had in this uh, none too dynamic cycle. What do you see as the editor of Restaurant Finance and uh, Franchise Times? You have a wonderful overview on the restaurant business. What are you seeing in the way of employment? You know, Jim, when I talk to restaurant owners across the country, they tell me it's still difficult to find people. Hiring is their their number one problem. Uh, It doesn't surprise me that restaurant hiring would slow down a bit because the industry has been in a slump really since uh, last summer, summer of 2016, especially in casual dining where restaurants are actually being closed. But um, it's also the sales slump impacted even fast casual restaurants, which were the hot growing area of the restaurant business. Hey, Joe, what what does that say about the state of business activity? in this country when uh, kind of 13 or 14 months into uh, industry-wide uh, soft patch in, in, uh, in dining out. Is that uh, indicative of something to do with the consumer or is it a cyclical thing specific to the restaurant world? You know, you know, judging from the reported comp sales of many restaurant chains, you'd probably say the middle and low-end consumer isn't doing very well. Now, there's other factors. There's restaurant competition. There's a lot of restaurants that have been built since the recession. You know, the grocery stores right. uh, have been offering more restaurant-related type products. But just judging from the comp sales of a lot of the chains and all the discounting that's going on in restaurants, you'd, you'd have to say maybe the middle and low-end consumer is, is stressed. Hey, you know, um, you know, give a, a carpenter a hammer, he's going to say it's a hammer. Now, wait, I got that maxim a little bit wrong. But we at Grants admittedly are somewhat preoccupied, if not obsessed, with credit, interest rates, and the like. And, and we see in the persistence of low rates and easy access to leverage finance, what we see is an invitation to overdoing it, to overinvestment, and to a general blight of muchness. Now, is it conceivable that over at the at least the aggressive building, not the overbuilding of restaurants, owes something to the credit and interest rate environment. Yeah, if you take a look at the restaurant industry, the the low rates have uh, have have done a couple of things. One, it's made it really easy for franchisees to borrow and to service debt because rates have been so low. You know, recessionary spreads on franchisee debt might be 400 to 500 basis points over an index, which is usually LIBOR. You know, today it's two and 300. You've got large national banks and regional banks financing franchisees vying to you know, competing to put money out. You know, there's a lot of leverage that's been added to these franchisees. It's also helped the big chains. You know, you look at Yum Brands or Burger King, Wendy's, Jack in the Box. They, post-recession, decided to embrace this asset light strategy and sell their company stores, become pure franchisors. And the fact that the rates were so low, the capital availability, there's a lot of willing buyers and that drove valuations up. Now, you take a look at today, we're, we're a year, almost a year and a half into a restaurant industry that people are saying is slumping and we see it in comp sales, yet capital is still plentiful, rates are low, banks are still vying to make loans. You know, so yes, it 
is it has it has impacted uh, the restaurant industry. John, and something I think you've written about a number of times in the past that kind of ties together easy finance and kind of the asset light model. You say it's not just the franchisors who are going to asset light, that but the franchisees are trying to uh, to monetize their assets too. C- could you talk to us a little bit about what they're doing and what it means for future recovery values on uh, sure. on lending well, to franchisees? You know, franchisees. I've been following franchisees since the early 80s. actually was a franchisee back in the early 80s. Restaurants used to get financed one by one, you know, unit by unit. And you'd buy the land, you'd build the building, you'd equip it, and you had to sometimes finance each of those transactions. So you'd have a real estate loan and you'd have an equipment loan. And it took a long time and it was expensive. And you thought real carefully about building restaurants. It took a lot and it was expensive. Today, today the way the, the, the deal works is that there is a huge net lease market out there that likes to own restaurant real estate. So franchisees over the last five, 10 years have decided that they can build more stores, own more stores, buy more stores if they don't have their capital tied up in real estate. So franchisees, just like the franchisors, have adopted this kind of quasi- asset light model where the real estate and a lot of these franchise restaurant locations are owned by an investor, owned by someone else. And that's fine. Uh, that's okay. It's just that when you own real estate, you, you own it, borrow against it. When you lease real estate, the rents go up every year. And so over time, you know, it cuts down on the operating margins of the franchisees. What does it all mean? What is, what is this uh, environment for the franchisee mean? It's allowed franchisees to get bigger and so you take a look at Yum Brands, Burger King. You know, they're relying on fewer and fewer franchisees to operate their system. And where a risk might possibly come in is that you've got fewer and fewer franchisees operating these restaurants around the country. I mean, I, I've heard Restaurant Brands International talk Burger King that they would like to have as few as 50 franchisees in the country. Well, you take 50 franchisees, you lever them up. You know, it's not like it was 10, 20 years ago when you had in Burger King six 600 franchisees, and the majority of them own their own real estate. Uh, it's a very levered system, the way it's currently configured. When, when we look at kind of the largest uh, Burger King franchisee, which I, I believe is Carol's, uh, their favorite franchisee, they, they have the first right of first refusal to acquire restaurants in 20 states. Burger King, Restaurant Brands International actually owns a stake in them. And when I look at their financials, it seems like profit's going down and it's not a very profitable business to begin with. What's going to happen to these large franchisees come the next cyclical uh, downturn or yeah. an upturn well, in interest rates? The, um, there's three things that can impact those franchisees uh, is uh, actually four. <laughs> Sales could go down, cost, commodity costs could go up, labor costs could go up and, and all of those things. Now sales and carols have been steady, not 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 great, but they've been they've been okay in the Burger King system. And interest rates could go up. And uh, if it, interest rates go up, you know, the carrying costs, the debt to service that debt will go up. And so one of those four things will impact Carol's. What's interesting about Carol's, Carol's is a typical franchisee in the restaurant space. Now it's a larger franchisee. In our rankings, it's, uh, you know, I think it's ranked number four in the country in terms of size. You know, they're doing what a lot of the large franchisees uh, have done over the last five years. They've been able to borrow. They've been able to um, uh, acquire other franchisees and build up their base of restaurants. You mentioned their right of first refusal. That's allowed them to uh, pick up a lot of stores in those territories where they hold that right of first refusal. But other franchisees have grown as well by buying up 
uh, other franchise restaurants and also buying up company stores that the big brands have been selling. How do they do that? They borrow and then they sell their real estate and lease it back. That's how all of this stuff gets financed and it adds a lot of leverage to the franchisees. John, who owns all this real estate that sits under fast food and, and casual well, dining restaurants? There's a, um, there's a number of different, first of all, the probably the largest owner are a number of real estate investment trusts to focus on the restaurant business. You know, there's realty income, there's store capital, there's spirit realty. Uh, these are all uh, four corners real estate. These are all publicly held real estate investment trusts that own retail and restaurant real estate. There also are individuals, you know, developers, real estate owners, trusts that own retail and restaurant real estate. And one of the reasons they like owning this kind of real estate, generally these leases are written in a triple net fashion, which means taxes, the maintenance, and the insurance of those properties are taken care of by the tenant. And so it becomes, a, uh, the rental income becomes an annuity to the owner. And this is a, uh, it's a huge investment area in the United States. And one of the reasons it is, is so big is, and I don't want to get into the, to the tax consequences of this, but the uh, federal, federal um, tax laws provide for someone to sell a piece of real estate and exchange into another piece of real estate without paying a tax. Restaurant real estate is really a high demand uh, asset for those, those types of people. In, in terms of the cycle, is there any difference in terms of who's the incremental buyer of, of restaurants and, and franchises today versus previous well, cycles? There's, it's, it's interesting. What if, if I go back to the 80s and 90s, um, the restaurant business, capital in the restaurant business came from the public markets. You know, we had a run of IPOs in the 1980s and 90s. That's where most of the growth capital came from. Uh, today, you have private equity funds instead of public investors driving the restaurant the restaurant business. You know, there's and why is that? Well, the public markets have changed to where smaller companies for for various securities reasons have been unable to go public, and uh, so the private equity funds and and even even family offices have come into the space. They've filled the void that the that the public market when the public markets left. There haven't been as many IPOs. In fact, I think the last. IPO in the restaurant business was in 2015. There just hasn't been a lot uh, in the last 10, 10 years, 10, 12 years. And it's had to be made up by private capital. And that's where private equity is coming in a big way. John, thank you. This is just terrific. You know, I, of all the trade publications we see, I must say, for my part, I, I, I think Restaurant Finance Monitor is certainly the best written and, uh, and oftentimes, John, the funniest. You uh, find quirky things and, and amazing facts having to do, for example, with the piling up of leverage, which always attracts my eye. Thank you for doing what you do, and thank you especially for being with us today. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. So long. Talk to you soon, John. Take care. A, a, word, uh, a word now on uh, eFinancial Careers, the world's uh, leading financial services career website. Website. You know, just just go there and, and see what they've got, that you can uh, create a profile, let recruiters easily match you to their open roles. You can uh, save jobs and uh, create alerts to stay informed of the latest opportunities. You can upload your resume and cover letter to quickly apply for jobs. Uh, so check out the site. That's uh, efinancialcareers.com, efinancialcareers.com. Hey, Evan, uh, you came up with something that I thought was just amazing the other day, and that is that uh, although the world economy seems to be kind of uh, oh, jogging along with, uh, you know, you're seeing some very, very strong 
economic data, at least the rhetorical kind of data, that is, you know, the uh, the survey stuff, the Tankan survey in Japan, I think, is the strongest in 2007, and there are similar sightings in China and elsewhere. But to me, paradoxically, in the, in the context of this perceived strength is continued, indeed, record out, you know, creation of, of credit by the world central bank, specifically uh, Japan's and Europe's ECB and uh, and Switzerland. Yeah, I mean, if you pick up a paper, you hear a global synchronized recovery. You'd, you'd think it's a pretty good time, but if you actually look what banks are doing, the ECB is buying around it's buying exactly sixty billion euros worth of uh, bonds each month. That's what seventy seventy billion dollars thereabouts. Yeah, seventy billion and change in dollars. The Swiss National Bank tries to manage it that the franc against the euro. So when the uh, ECB prints, the Swiss National Bank prints, and over the last three months, it's it's added about seven billion to its balance sheet every month. All right. That's 77 a month, right? Okay. Yeah. Then the Bank of Japan is uh, is in its own QE program. Um, and over the last three months, it's expanded its balance sheet by an average of about 36 and a half or $36.6 billion a okay, month. Okay. That's uh, what, $112 billion a month or so. I, it's, I actually get $114 billion adding up those three. And then, and then you look back to 2009 and the Fed did its, its first QE program. And over the course of that whole year, it added an average of $112.4 billion per month to its securities portfolio. So if you look right now, we're, we're actually doing more QE through those three central banks and the Fed did in 09. Yeah. Well, they said an amazing fact. You know, the um, credit markets certainly have availed themselves of these rates. You know, uh, I, I think I saw, yes, I did see something. Uh, Standard & Poor's has a, a very, very good data arm called LCD. And LCD reports that the, that the leveraged buyout market is uh, encumbered with easy credit it is, as it has been since 2007, specifically on large transactions involving major companies. Debt financing has been coming in at a ratio of debt to cash flow or EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. The ratio of debt to EBITDA is now closing in, I think, at six times. A significant uh, point for the bank regulators. They, they kind of tisk at that. And uh, it's a figure that is the six to one figure. Kind of takes us back to 2007. That's when things got uh, very hot and uh, very parlous. So um, I don't know. I, th- I think we're seeing, we're seeing the you know, the classic reenactment of the credit cycle, right? It starts out uh, at a time of contrition that follows the bust. So every boom begins in contrition, right? It begins with people saying, ah, boy, just one more chance. I'll never do that again. So that lasts, what, 20 minutes? Uh, they're about. Presently, uh, the world heals as the world must, and it's good that it does. And uh, and people recover their bearings and their courage, and uh, and uh, credit becomes more accessible and, and uh, very widespread start to uh, start to tighten and bankers who had been taught to say nothing but no are now allowed to say yes selectively selectively mind you and that's kind of let's call that year two or three of the expansion and competition intensifies as competition does and presently bankers are encouraged to say yes never mind this this negativity the boss will tell them it's time to uh, it's time to generate some volume so uh, the spreads tighten further and uh, loan volumes increase balance sheets become more encumbered and uh, asset values rise, thereby validating the decisions of the aggressive lenders. And uh, before you know it, the year is 2017. Yeah. Well, it's not a bad year. You're starting to see so many of the same. Uh, well, for example, you're seeing uh, 100-year bonds by the most improbable sovereign borrowers. You're seeing. Um, well, here's a here's a little factoid. I think we published this in Grant's Interest Rate Observer, so it, it's it's true certainly, and probably startling as well. So here it is. So the um, the European Central Bank began monetizing gobs of sovereign debt several years ago.
ago, I think in 19, 2016, it uh, broadened out from sovereign debt, bank-related debt, into investment-grade corporate securities. And I think it's bought in excess of 100 billion euros. I, and here is the amazing thing. As of this past summer, price on at the time of acquisition of 20% of this corporate debt indicated a yield of less than zero. So negative yielding corporate debt. How is that for a concept? I do take uh, the uh, the maxim of the uh, nobleman during the French Revolution who said uh, that he would rather have a mortgage on a garden than on a kingdom. That speaks to the ever-presence of sovereign risk, a government arbitrarily exercising its powers and uh, telling you you're not going to get paid. But my goodness, I mean, is it, is it, what are they thinking about? What, would you pay a company to take your money? I sometimes kind of feel that way with my cell phone yeah, bill. I know. Well, Evan, nobody's getting any younger. I do wish, I do wish there'd be a denouement because I'm tired of my own uh, foreboding voice. But uh, as long as events call for this kind of voice, we've got to keep at it, right? Yeah. Well, one thing to remember is there are a lot of mega deals done in late 06 and 2007. Not a lot of them worked out wonderfully. There was a TXU, the, the, the power plant in Texas, and it, it turned out that commodities are still um, fluctuating in price. And when you have a lot of debt, that doesn't give you a lot of room. There was um, Caesars in Vegas, the casino. It turned out that fluctuations in revenue with a lot of debt is not a great thing for or a capital structure. Yeah, true indeed. And um, it, by the time the cycle's ready to turn, most people have, have decided that the cycle's not going to turn. That's the way of the world. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Evan, uh, it is a pleasure. Let's do this again next week, shall we? Sounds good. Eric, thank you. And to our faithful, noble listeners, thank you for tuning in. Till next time, Grant's Interest Rate Observer. 